Let's holy God speak to our lives right now through Christ. I love the hymn because he lives. It's a beautiful hymn. You may not know that it was first released October 18, 1971. So get ready, folks. That means because he lives is 50 years old this year. And all year long, the Gaither Music Group is going to be celebrating across different platforms with different singers, different genres, and they're just going to celebrate this incredible song. It's probably the most popular song that Bill and Gloria Gaither, Gospel Music Hall of Fame members, wrote. And they were asked about it, and Bill Gaither said, people have asked me, did you know right away that it was going to be a song that was going to be translated in other languages? And his reply was, when you create a new song and you write as many as we have, you really don't know. Many times you write one and you think it's going to be the next amazing grace and it dies a natural death. When we wrote Because He Lives, I felt it was a good song, but you only find out how good it is when people began to respond to it. And the more we sang it, the more people responded. And Gloria Gaither, in her part of the interview, clarified for me, gave context to the one verse in that song that has never really made sense to me, why it was there. Well, I found out. I'm still surprised that the song had a, such universal appeal, she wrote. It was so personal, I thought it might just be for us. It was the end of the 60s when it seemed the whole world was falling apart. In such a chaotic time, we were expecting our third baby. During this pregnancy, Bill and I asked ourselves, who would bring a baby into a world like this? It was easy to feel fearful for the future. But when Benji was born and the nurse laid that little baby in our arms, it was like, an aha moment of sorts. We came to realize we don't get married, make a home, have babies, and go about our lives because the world is stable. When has it ever been stable? She asked. We live our lives with confidence because the resurrection is true. We held our son and said, we can do this. We can raise this child in this unstable world because of the power of life. Life wins. And because our Lord is alive, we trust Him with our future. Honestly, it was the song we wrote for us. Well, folks, today is Resurrection Sunday. And yes, every single Sunday we worship, we are honoring the resurrection of our Lord. But every year when Easter comes, and I'm not going to give you the form, a very common through 1 John today. And we're going to look at what the Apostle had to say, because all throughout his letter, he kept on championing the cause of Christ. What he accomplished in his incarnation, God became man and walked among us. What he accomplished in his atonement, he paid the price of our sins. 
And as we read in our uh, scripture earlier this morning, our responsive reading, we discover that Paul said, everything that Jesus did has meaning only because he was raised from the dead. Without that resurrection, nothing counted. And so today, we're going to take a look at how John ends his book, and we're going to look at the effects that the resurrection of Christ has on us as children. What it, what it has on all those who have believed and will believe. And we're to discover, because of John's writing, in the risen Christ, we actually have Victory in Jesus. And we're going to look at 1 John 5, 18 through 21. An incredible passage of Scripture. So let's take a look at what God had to say about this victory that is ours. So hear the word of the Lord. John wrote, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So when John wrote this, he was assuring his readers, he wanted them to understand Christ was keeping them triumphant. Christ gave them victory. And we desperately need to know that. Because right now, it is very easy for us, uh, as I've, I mentioned before, we can become chicken little right now. The sky is falling. We can be terrified. We can be afraid of everything that's happening. We need to know that the risen Lord gives us victory. Now, how does he do that? How does he keep us victorious? Well, let's take a look at what John had to say about the actions that the Son of God did on our behalf, what he's accomplished for us, that we could have victory in Jesus. And the very first one is incredibly important. The very first thing Christ has done for us in this list, our risen Lord keeps us safe. Now, he has a particular safety in mind. The risen Lord keeps us safe. And John said that the Son granted safety from sin to his followers. Now, what he's doing in this text is reaffirming what he had said earlier. Earlier in the book, he said, a true child of God cannot live a lifestyle of sin. In other words, a child of God, a real person born of God, cannot throw off all that God means and just throw himself or herself into a lifestyle of ongoing sin, unrepentant, unconfessed. It's an impossibility. And the way John made states it here, he shows, for John, there are no exceptions to this generalization. A true child of God cannot continually live in sin 
as if his salvation means nothing, as if her salvation accomplished nothing. Now, how is that possible? Well, I want you to notice there are a couple of phrases that are extremely alike in our text. First, he talks about anyone born of God. And then he talks about the one who was born of God. And they are so similar, but there's an importance that we need to see. So let me first take you to the King James Version. It translates that verse. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So John, in the King James Version, was saying the child of God, born of God, keeps himself safe. Now, the King James Version is focusing on the idea that a child of God, born of God, must open his heart and follow God obediently and faithfully, and in doing so will keep himself safe. Most translators, modern translators and scholars, opt for a different view. Most translations point that it is not the believer who keeps himself safe, but it is the Christ in whom the believer has trusted. And the NIV makes that very simple for us because they capitalize the O in one. They want us to be absolutely certain that John was talking about the Son of God keeping us safe. Now, why do translations opt for that idea that is Jesus? Why don't they go back to the concept that King James is bringing about? Well, there are several reasons. And I don't want to get overly technical, but I'm going to get a little bit, okay? There is a shift in tense in those two statements. The one who is born of God and the one who was born of God. Anyone born of God and the one who was. The first statement talks about something that happened in the past that continues on throughout life. In other words, there was a moment in time you were saved. And then the rest of your life, you were in the process of being saved until ultimately Christ comes and we, our salvation is made complete. But the one who was born of God points to one specific event. Think of it as a dot on a line. This happened. And what he's referencing, at a moment in time, Paul writes in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time was, was, had come, God sent his son. Jesus was born as a human being. God, very God, taking on human flesh, living among us. And that happened. And it will never happen again. So that's one idea why. This shift in tense, John seems to be focusing not on a believer, but on the fact the Son of God came on our behalf. So, the one who was born of God, if, another reason, if it did refer to a believer, that reflexive pronoun found in the King James Version himself would be in all of the Greek manuscripts. It is not. It's supplied. The King James writers were trying to understand what it meant, and this is what they declared. So it's applied. It does not say the one who is born of was born of God keeps himself. And then finally, throughout the Word of God, in the book of John, in the book of 1 Peter, in the book of Jude, in the book of Revelation, and in 1 John, there's a recurring theme. 
the Son of God keeps His children safe. He protects them constantly, continually. And so we are drawing a conclusion that John was saying the Son of God has come to protect His people. And when McDowell put it this way, the Son has come to protect the sons of God, the children of God. And this is crucial, and this is important, and this is amazing. Jesus Christ came to protect you and me from the power and the penalty of sin. What does that mean for us? Our Lord will not let us be overrun by temptation. Please, please grab hold of this. Our Lord will not let us be overrun by temptation. Now, can a Christian fall to temptation? Of course. John already dealt with this in the very first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he makes it even stronger. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him. In other words, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So, John is saying, yeah, a Christian can lapse into sin. He can fall to temptation. But what John is also saying is reaffirmed by the Apostle Paul in one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and God will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. That's an amazing passage. Paul is saying every time you are tempted, there's an escape hatch. Every time you are tempted, there is a way out. Now our problem with temptation We don't always look for the exit door. John is saying in his text, the major way of escape or victory over temptation is the Lord Jesus Christ. What He came, He is our strength. He is our source. He is our protection. Uh, I played on the worst junior high football team ever. Uh, I will freely admit that. And I remember my worst experience in my career of football. By the way, after my ninth grade year, I got a job. I thought I wanted money more than what I was getting on the field. I lined up. I was ready. I was going to sack me a quarterback. And I lined up, and the guy in front of me, I said, I got this. He was smaller than me. I was sure I was tougher than him. I was going to run over him. And then I hear a voice. You need help? And he nods. And just as the ball is being snapped, I look to my left, and Godzilla was on the field. I'm not sure if he were 21, but he had to be. He was huge. And I did not sack a quarterback the entire game. I never got off the line of scrimmage the entire game. My entire game was stay alive. 
I could not maneuver him. I could not fight him. I could have taken the guy in front of me. I know that. And I'm pretty sure he had a mouthpiece, so I couldn't see his mouth. And I'm pretty sure he was grinning really big when he heard, do you need help? I could take him. I could not take his defender. Folks, on our own, temptation is going to run off just roughshod over us. It will defeat us. It will just completely overtake any possibility. But we are not on our own. We have a defender that sin cannot defeat. He is our defender. We are not on our own. And so we really can begin to see victory in our struggle against sin. We really can begin to see more and more triumph as we understand this and we learn it. The Christ who died for us lives for us right now. He lives for us now. He is making intercession for us. He is our advocate in heaven and He is our defender on earth. And when we learn to rely on His control, His strength, His power, we can begin to understand in the risen Christ we have victory. Victory in Jesus. And that's our first thing Jesus did for us that John lists. He keeps us safe from sin. And that is born because of the next action that he tells us about. This Christ who makes us safe from sin, what else does he have to say? Our risen Lord delivers us from Satan's control. I need you to listen very carefully. The risen Christ has come to give us victory over the devil. And John explained that the Son broke the power of Satan over the followers of Christ. And he states this very specifically in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Listen. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Listen. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why he came. And in our lives, the effect of this, the effect of His work is that the evil one cannot harm us. We need to be absolutely clear we understand what this means. Most English translations say the evil one cannot touch us. And there's nothing wrong with the word touch. It is a viable translation. The word does mean touch. But the problem for us is our English language Sometimes it's just not strong enough. The word touch can mean everything from a fist bump, an elbow bump, a shaking of a hand, a pat on the wrist, a hug, a general, or it can mean something far different. In our text, it means something far different. You see, the word here means literally to grasp, to hold on to, to try to keep. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. The 20th chapter of John, verse 17. And it's Jesus' encounter with Mary in the garden. John 20, 17. 
And he tells her something that sounds strange to our ears. The king, let me read three different translations. The King James Version said, he told her, touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended to my father. And it sounds like, Mary, don't touch me. Even a simple touch. But in the resurrection stories, we know that he actually fixed a meal for a couple of disciples who had been on the road to Emmaus. He had meal with them. He touched them. So it's got to be mean more than just touch. NIV translates it, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And the ESV, even you go stronger, he told her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. And the idea was, Mary, you can't hold on to me. You can't keep me here. I'm not back here to stay. I'm going to go to be with the Father. Now, he had told his disciples, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will be with you through the spirit of truth that God is sending. But you can't hold on. And in this context, he was saying the, the enemy can't grasp us. He can't hold on to us. Can he touch us? Can he hurt us a little bit? Can he tempt us and we fall? Yes. All of those things are true. But what he cannot do for the child of God, he can't lay hold on you and he cannot snatch you out of the Father's hand. He cannot drag you out of the light into the darkness. He cannot pull you out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. He cannot ultimately harm the child of God. And we need to know that. And what this means, the enemy cannot control God's children the way he controls the world. Did you notice that he made a contrast? The evil one can't harm the child of God, but the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now when John uses the word world in his letter, he's talking about that part of human society that is surrendered over to the enemy of Christ. Now, he does not say that those outside of Christ are of the devil. When he says those who are born of God, God created us. God redeemed us. The people in the world were not created by Satan. They are not out of his hand, but they are in his hand. The word literally means they lie there. In other words, someone has pointed out they're not struggling to be free. They don't understand they're enslaved. They don't understand they're trapped. And they are under his control to do with as he will. But for us, the promise is, because of what Christ has done for us, Satan cannot do to us what he ultimately wants to, which is ruin us. So if you're a Christian here today, and you have ever use the phrase made popular by Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, stop. He can't make you. He can tempt. He can try to lead you astray. But if you follow the temptation, that's on you. That's on me. We surrendered. He can't make us. And so what we need to understand, the application for us today, as we look at this risen Christ, we need not live in fear of the enemy. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to quake because of Satan. And I believe that there are two extremes when it comes to the evil one in this world. 
one of the extremes belongs to the world. And that first extreme, when it comes to the enemy, is do not take him seriously. He's a joke. He's nothing. He's a myth. He, he doesn't even exist. This last week, uh, Jim Lowe sent me a little uh, message with uh, uh, a news article online. And if you are online at all, you have probably heard uh, last week, Palm Sunday weekend, the rapper Little Nas X uh, released a video, Montero, which is his given name. And also along with the video, he and an art collaborative out of New York called Mischief, it doesn't have any vowels, but that's what it is, Mischief, released some shoes. How many of you have heard about the Satan shoes this week? A bunch of them. Okay. Now, they're a pair of Nikes, made from a pair of Nike. And please, do not boycott Nike. Do not write them ugly letters. Do not tell them, how could you do this? They didn't. They've made it very clear. We were not in collaboration. We didn't agree with this. They've actually sued. And a judge, this last part of the week, the judge granted them a restraining order. And the shoes that were sold cannot be delivered until there's a full trial. Nike wants them destroyed. By the way, there were 666 pairs of Satan shoes produced and sold. You get the imagery, don't you? They sold out within a minute of going on sale online and they cost $1,018. And little Nas X says that's connected to Luke 10.18 when Jesus said, he saw Satan fall from heaven. Now, just to make you even dislike it more, it has a pentagram on the shoe, it has an inverted cross on the shoe, and the sole there is some red liquid. Most of it is ink, but Mischief has said one of our employees supplied a drop of blood for every shoe. It, it's being marketed. It has human blood in it. People have gone crazy. People have gone, it's just been ballistic. A firestorm online. I do not recommend you watch the video, which means many of you will run home to try to watch it. It's a very disturbing video. And essentially, Little Nas X has said, he posted a letter that he had written to his 14-year-old self explaining the video. At the very first of the video, there's a voiceover. And he basically says, this video is about me escaping the hatred and the power that was against me, and I've finally been able to recognize and acknowledge my own sexual identity. And it is a metaphor for the battle that he says he fought and won. I have no idea what Little Nas X actually believes about Satan. I do know at the end of the video, he actually kills Satan. You think, oh, well, that's good. I don't know. He kills Satan, takes his horns, and then takes over hell, is the implication. I do not believe that Lil Nas X is advocating satanic religion. I don't know that he, he probably doesn't even acknowledge that Satan exists. What this was, folks, was a PR gimmick. And it accomplished exactly what he wanted it to do. People are talking about this song, these shoes, and people are going ballistic. 
I watched a video of a pastor's, a pastor's experience and how he dealt with it. And folks, he scared me. He was just so angry. I don't think he's advocating Satanism any more than I think the Harry Potter books were advocating witch, Wicca witchcraft. This is a gimmick. And my problem with it, it's what the world does all the time. Satan's nothing to be taken seriously. We can make a joke out of him. We can show somebody finding themselves and say it's a liberating moment. We can do everything, but we're not going to take him seriously. And this is what's so sad. Remember I said that John said they're lying in the palm of Satan? They're lying in his hand? They lay down and they're not fighting because they don't understand they're in chains. And I'm telling you, it's a dangerous thing to not take the enemy seriously. And we need to be careful. But that's primarily the extreme of the world. Our extreme? I've seen too often among believers, we grant to Satan more power than he has. We're afraid of him. We're just absolutely afraid. I knew someone who used to sleep with their Bible under their pillow because they thought it would keep them safe from demons. My response was, try reading your Bible. That'll help a lot more. I had some friends who were absolutely afraid to go pray for a guy because they were afraid he might be possessed. And rather than understand that we have power in Christ, they were just scared. Folks, we need to understand something. Satan is not Christ's equal. Can I defeat him in Danny's power? No. But Christ has already made him a defeated foe. He may win some skirmishes. He may win some battles. But in the end, he is a defeated foe and he will fall ultimately to the Father who is eternal life. We do not have to be afraid of the enemy. We can stand in the power of Christ and we can confront. Uh, the book of Jude says that Archangel Michael tells the enemy, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. And that's where we are. Over 40 years ago, I was studying and, and looking at the issue of spiritual warfare. And one night in the middle of the night, a presence came into my room. Uh, I know what it is to be scared by a scary movie. Folks, I could not see anything, but I felt an oppression enter into my room as real as you're sitting here now. And I know what was going on. The enemy wanted me to absolutely forget that there's a battle going on. So he tried to scare me off. At the top of my lungs at 1 o'clock in the morning, I yelled out, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And it was gone. A week later, my neighbors next door moved. I don't know if there was a connection. Uh, they, may, they may have been frightened by me. But folks, what I want you to see, we have power not in our own. Jesus broke the back of the devil. Jesus broke the power of Satan. And he cannot 
ultimately harm us. So we need to understand that. He will not win the war, this enemy. And we need to stand in the power of Christ. We need to stand in the grace of our Father. And we do not have to be afraid. Because our Lord has already won the battle. Now, how's he won the battle for us over the enemy? How does he defeat sin? John gives us one last meaningful statement that kind of oversees everything else he has ever said about Jesus. Our risen Lord gives us relationship with the Father. Our, our risen Lord gives us relationship with the Father. And this, again, is absolutely crucial for us to get hold of. John reminded his readers. He's already been talking about this, but he takes one last moment. He reminded his readers that the Son had brought them to the true and living God. There are three things important in verse 20. Three statements that reinforce this idea. The first is the Son of God has come. And that particular verb is used only in this passage in the Scripture. And it emphasizes the presence. And it literally means He has come and He is here right now. And so we we glory in that. Jesus Christ, His presence is with us right now. And because of that, we can know He is the one who mediates to us a knowledge of God. He is the one who makes it possible for us to know God. And and the word know here, when he says we know that the Son of God has come, that means absolute knowledge. This is a fact we embrace and we know. But he says, but he has uh, given us understanding so that we may know the true one. That know is a word of experience. Know by experience. And it is personal. He did not say he's come to let us know the truth. He said He's come to let us know the One who is true. God is not an abstract concept for me. He is my Heavenly Father. He is my Lord. He is my Master. One with whom I have a relationship. How? Because of Jesus Christ. And then, we are told that this One who has come, this One who is mediated, is the one who leads us to a uniting with God. Because of Christ, we are united with the Lord who saved us. And because we are united with the Lord who saved us, we are united with the Father in glory. And W.T. Connor, favorite Baptist theologian of all time, said, a fellowship with God and a fellowship with Christ are inseparable. We can know God. We can walk in a relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. And then John throws us for a little bit of a loop because he says we are united with God because we are united with the Son. He is the true God and eternal life. And I'll let you know because folks like me, We've got to debate stuff all the time. Who is he talking about? He is the true God and eternal life. There are those who say he's talking about God the Father. There are those who are saying 
This is the strongest testimony of deity in the, in the New Testament about Jesus and, and the basic idea you take the pronoun and you get it to its quickest referral. Folks, for me, I embrace both realities. God, very God, is the eternal God. Jesus Christ is very God. How can I be made one with God? Because I am made one with the Christ who is God. And for me, this is amazing. John is saying, we know the truth and the truth is in God. And then, as if he didn't give us one last, he gives us one last thing. Out of the blue, John ends, little children, keep yourself from idols. And I will tell you, there are biblical scholars who scratch their head and try to, what was he talking about? Now, he could literally have meant idol, a, a, a literal idol, because idolatry was prominent in the Roman Empire. But John doesn't mention pagan religion at all in his letter. What he does talk about are false teachers who identified with the church, who identified themselves as believers, and then pulled away and said, look, everything you've been told about Jesus is a lie. He's not really the Son of God in the flesh. He didn't really die for your sins. So John may be using idol as a metaphor for the false teachers and the false gods they have raised up. In 2007, the Pew Survey uh, released the U.S. Religious Landscape Survey. And in it, they they said that over 78% of people in America identify themselves as Christians. And that's exciting to hear. But you need to understand these kinds of surveys just ask you, what do you identify as? And people say Christian. And they don't look any further than that. Under that big umbrella of Christendom, you have Protestants, you have Catholics, you have Mormons, you have Jehovah's Witnesses, you have uh, folks at the Unification Church that identify themselves. As Christian, you have Eastern Orthodoxy, all sorts of different things. And there are, in those groups, there are some teachings about Jesus that are absolutely incompatible. I told you, when John says, test the spirits to see if they really have God, look at what people teach about Jesus. And when they depart from the biblical revelation of God in Christ, they have created a false God. And the survey concluded that what we have in our world today is a marketplace, uh, a comparative religion marketplace. In other words, there are people who are bouncing back and forth between all different religions, never settling on one truth. They're looking for something. And unfortunately, what they may wind up with is a departure from the truth. What does this mean for us? The false gods of this world have nothing to offer us. Now in case you, well Danny, I don't have any idols in my house. Just remember, it could be talking about false teachings. And this is a warning. Do not let yourself be led astray by anybody who says 
this is the truth about Jesus. Ignore what you've been told in the Word of God. But it's also been pointed out, anything in our lives that seeks to be number one, anything that tries to push God out of the centrality of our life, whether it be our jobs, our families, wealth, power, status, those things become our false gods. And if that's the way he meant it, then folks, we do have to take this very seriously. Because I guarantee you, in every life represented here, every person who is a born-again believer, you are constantly bombarded by different ideas, different things to pull you away from God. And I tell you, anything but God, very God in your life, any substitute for God will fail. It will have no real eternal meaning and significance. And as we apply this, as we take a look at this victory, we can remain true to the one who is true. We actually can be committed to the truth of Christ. Which means this text is a challenge. This little children keep yourself from idols. This isn't just a random thought he throws out. This is kind of an implied question. John has spoken to his people all the way through about what is genuine, what is real, what is false and counterfeit. And now he comes, now you keep yourself from idols. In other words, whom will you serve? Are you going to serve the true and living God? Or are you going to allow something else to direct your life? We must reject any teaching about Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, that deviates from the biblical revelation of God in Christ. And we must resist anything that would vie for our ultimate love and commitment. By the grace of God, we can. You and I, because of what Christ has done, introducing us to the Father, bringing us to a place we can know God, we have victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus our Savior forever. He sought us and bought us with His redeeming blood. He loved us ere we knew Him and all our love is due Him. He plunged us to victory beneath the cleansing flood. My friends, because of Christ, we have victory. We have victory in Jesus because He breaks the power and penalty of sin in our lives through what He accomplished on Calvary in the empty tomb. Because of the risen Jesus, we have victory because He has defeated the power of Satan. He no longer rules our lives. We have victory in Jesus because of Christ. I can know the God who has created me and has redeemed me through the shed blood of His Son. We can have victory today And so, my plea, let's start living in the victory. Let's make a decision. 
in the strength and grace of God, we will not be victims to a world that doesn't like us. We will not allow Satan to run over, run over us roughshod, not in our own power, but in the power of Christ. We are not going to give up our faith. And we are not going to turn our back on our Lord. We need to stand firm in the face of the enemy. We need to stand firm in all that God has given us. Because right now, folks, it's hard for people who don't know the Lord Jesus to believe us when we are quaking in fear and running away hiding. Jesus Christ has set us free. And so right here, right now, I'm asking you to reaffirm your commitment to the Lord. And if you've been battling and you've been losing battles, I'm asking you to come to the Lord today and ask Him, God, please, let me begin to see the victory that is my blood right as your child. My blood right because Christ gave His blood for me. We can have victory. Ask Him to the victory that belongs to His children. And you can come if you want to pray at the altar. You can where you're at. But folks, we sing. There are certain songs we sing really loud. Victory in Jesus is one of those. There is no whispering when we sing victory in Jesus. Well, let's believe it then. And ask God to give us victory.